This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, all episodes are currently available completely ad-free on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. Just follow the link in our show notes. You're guaranteed to find your new favourite true crime listen. From con men to missing people, forensic investigations to miscarriages of justice, What's the Story Crime is the home for all true crime fans who want bingeable, addictive, crime-based content. G. Woodhouse once said that golf, like the measles, should be caught young, for if postponed to riper years, the results may be serious. James Nutley got bitten by the golfing bug early, which is how the 25-year-old found himself one windy October in the Welsh seaside town of Tenby. He was there with his golf club for a tournament and the first night of the trip began, as it always did, with a journey through several of the region's drinking dens. When James reached his limit, he decided to make the return journey to his hotel, located on the promenade overlooking Tenby's South Beach. The trip should have taken him no more than six minutes on foot, ten if you factor in his tipsy state and the gale-force winds he was battling as he walked. But James never made it back to his hotel. He was last seen on CCTV, just 38 yards from the door of the Gilter, where he and his friends were staying. Almost 20 years later, his parents, Catherine and Geoffrey, and sister Helen, are still waiting for him to come home. I'm Pandora Sykes, and you're listening to The Missing, a podcast series produced by What's the Story Sounds, and brought to you with help from the charities Missing People and Locate International. They believe that all of the cases in this series could still be solved. This is The Missing, James Nutley. The Nutleys had two major passions, racing and golf. Catherine's family had always kept horses, and Jeff, in his younger years, had been a jockey the pair meeting when he happened to be taking one of her dad's stallions out for a spin. They were instantly smitten with one another. And then, after a long engagement... We got married in 1976 on a beautiful frosty day at the local golf club. Eventually, injury forced Jeff to hang up his jockey silks. And then he decided to change horsepower and he went uh, into mini... Like mini coaches, mini buses. And Catherine got a job working in Lloyd's Bank. And luckily, Geoffrey had managed to save a bit of money from his race riding. And he was able to buy his parents, we'll say farm, but he always used to say it was a house with a large garden. So it had 21 acres with it. Known locally as Charity Farm, the couple's new home was just a stone's throw away from Cowent the village where Catherine had grown up, in the county of Monmouthshire. Three years later, James, their first child, was born. He was asthmatic, and we only found that out when he was nine months old. 
and we nearly lost him because, of course, the breathing problem. And we had quite a frightening time. But luckily, hospitals were pretty good then. And uh, he came through it. But he, we didn't wrap him up in cotton wool, which is what my grandmother and my aunts wanted me to do. James was soon followed by a daughter, Helen, and the pair of them had the run of the place. We'd been given these red wellies and red suits, outside suits, zip up, you know, like a snowsuit. And he decided to take his sister for a walk around the farm and he pushed her into the snowdrift and left her there. And (laughs) came back home and we said, well, you know, where's Helen? I don't know. Luckily, being in the red snowsuit, you could see her straight away. James was no stranger to a bit of light-hearted hell-raising. We used to have a couple of dogs about the farm, you can imagine this. Um, (laughs) He let them out after you tell him not to, and he also had a habit of taking the keys out of the car and hiding them. And the farm being a farm, there was no shortage of animals. Everybody seemed to want to dump their unwanted chickens, ducks, dogs on us. We were like the lost property for dogs. Uh, He loved all those animals. Now, Helen wasn't too keen at all on them. She didn't. We had a few cattle. We had a few ponies. Then we found James was allergic to ponies, to hair, you know, with, with his asthma. And then the way we got rid of it, the allergies to horses or hair was he used to go to the race meetings. So the more he was closer to them, the more immune he got. The Nutleys were plugged into the local amateur racing scene and the whole family spent many a Saturday at Point to Points all over Monmouthshire. You would take your picnic and it's a social gathering. One which usually ended up in the nearest pub. And then there was the farm, we used to do a bit of haymaking, which was great fun. James used to like to drive the tractor. <laughs> uh, that's when he was a bit older, of course. But no, we, um, Jeffrey decided one day, he thought they might like some pet lambs. So uh, he brought home a ewe and she had triplets. And then she died, the mother died. So you're left, left with these three pet lambs, technically. So we had to bottle feed them. So I would or Jeffrey one, James the other, and Helen the other. And they were proper pets, and they never went off the farm. James was a bright student and a keen footballer, but it wasn't until he stepped onto his first fairway at the age of 12 that he realised where his interests truly lay. Our local golf club was at the sort of the end of our lane. They carried their golf clubs up the road, and across a gate, and then they were on the golf course, and you'd give them a pound each, and they'd stay there for the whole day. And they'd have um, just a basket of chips and lots of mayonnaise and tomato sauce all on it. You knew they were safe, and we actually felt that the golf taught them manners as well. On the farm, there was no shortage of places for James to hone his swing. Well, Jeffrey, in the barn, he actually put... um, in those days, you had used to have like a rubber back carpet. So he hung it up quite a large lot and it was like you could hit the balls into it. It was like a net. So we'd all practice like that. And then if you wanted to get the real, you'd go out on the grass and then you could hit it at one side of the field. 
and hopefully not lose the golf ball for the cattle to eat. They would try chewing it, that's for sure. He was always told, don't hit the ball back towards the house. And one particular day, that's just what he did. It hit the house and ricocheted into the car windscreen. So he wasn't very popular. <laughs> Together, the Nutley family were a force to be reckoned with at their local golf club. I think we won everything at the golf club. Myself, Geoffrey, James and Helen. We all managed to clear out, you know, clear a few trophies occasionally. James was proving to be a talented golfer. He was selected for his county team and made junior captain and even went on to win the Cannes French Open when he was 17. He was presented with his trophy by Welsh golfing legend Ian Woosnam. He came down to a very good handicap, and uh, but his temperament wasn't quite right for it. He, he really wanted to be better than he was, and if the shot wasn't perfect, well, you could see that club flying. When James left school, he applied for a job at the Racing Post. He was no stranger to the betting shop, and he hoped to parlay his encyclopedic knowledge of racing into a career. But he was very miffed he didn't get it. But he actually took part in a competition, it was called the Ten to Follow, where you had to pick ten horses, and at the end of the season you had points for if they'd won second or third. Anyway, he finished tenth in that, and I think he won... £4,000. He was an avid follower of form. <laughs> James got a job working at a warehouse, which he hated. But then he landed his dream gig. Which was working for a golf manufacturer, which supplies golf clubs, the actual clubs you play with. And he was a, uh, a demonstrator. Uh, so he was off all over the country. James spent the summer of 2004 driving around the UK in a white van, laden with golf gear, visiting clubs and pro shops the length and breadth of the country, and he had an absolute ball along the way. It wasn't a full time. It was contracted to, so that the summer months, like August to September. So it was the August to September before he went missing. One of the stops James made that summer was in the seaside town of Tenby in southwest Wales, a place he was very familiar with and one which would come to be of major significance for him and his family. Every year during half-term in October, James would travel there with his golf club for a competition and 2004 was no different. Since he'd been a junior playing golf, the club or the juniors I'd always gone on a golf trip in that particular time, which was half term in October. And previously, of course, Jeffrey had gone with him. <laughs> and the motto was, juniors, look after your adults. <laughs> it was because the adults got into terrible states while they were away. James got up early on the morning of October the 24th to get in one last practice session before leaving for Tenby. They had to. It was a big competition. <laughs> and then he came home. Um, my parents were there. They were having lunch and we put a dinner up for James. Uh, he spoke to my grandfather, my father, sorry, about racing because there was racing on the television and they had a discussion about that. Then he, he went 
and packed his bag because he had a special tightless bag that was given to him for work. And then his friend came round and we just said, uh, he said, I might play golf on the way back up on the Tuesday and I'll see you later. And that was it. Gone. James was picked up from his home that afternoon by a friend who also lived in Caldecott. The four young men in the car, surrounded by their bulky golf equipment, made the 110-mile journey in just over two hours. The CCTV shows them arriving in Tenby, and they went to the cash point machines to get money. Then I think they went to book in at the hotel, which is on the seafront of the South Beach. The hotel in question was known as the Gilta, a beautiful Victorian building. They were staying in different hotels, which did cause a bit of confusion. And they went to the pub called the Lifeboat. And some people remember seeing him in there at the time. I think they just all met up. Then they went back to the hotel and changed to go back out. So that was about seven o'clock at night. Over the course of the next four hours, James and his golf buddies embarked on a pub crawl, taking in several nautical-themed taverns along the way. They ended up in a late-night bar called the Prince of Wales. And apparently he was sick in there, so you can tell he'd had a, a bit. But the chap who kept the pub was a friend of one of the golfers, and uh, I think they, James decided he was walking home. The Prince of Wales was on Upper Frog Street, just a five-minute walk from James's accommodation on the seafront. He left the bar alone at approximately 11.40pm, and he was last seen at 11.57, when he was picked up by CCTV, crossing the road towards the Atlantic Hotel, just 35 metres away from the entrance to the Gilter. But given the late hour, James's absence wasn't picked up on until the following morning. They'd all come down for breakfast, although he was sharing a room. But they thought then James must have met his other friend, Philip, because he was. this is where the, all the different hotels came into it. And they thought he'd gone to see Philip. So they didn't really worry about him. And it was only when they came down to breakfast in the morning of the 25th, there was no James. So... Oh, well, we've got his clubs and stuff in the car. Or we'll go to the golf club. Well, James didn't appear, did he? So I think that's when they raised the alarm. As well as the tourists that the golf tournament attracts, Tenby is a popular hen and stag destination, which means that the local police force have dealt with their fair share of wayward drinkers, people who usually turn up looking sheepish a few hours after their friends have reported them missing. The police told James's companions that he'd probably gone home with someone, slept in, and would turn up later with his tail between his legs. But then a discovery was made that forced them to take things seriously. A tourist turned up at the police station to hand in some lost items. They had come across a driving licence, a national insurance card, a Euro golf card, and a Paddy Power bookmaker's card lying loose on the sands of South Beach, all of which belonged 
to James. And at that point, the police knew it was time to notify his family. I think I got a phone call, or Geoffrey had a phone call, and then friends came to, I was working in the bank, it was about half past five, they all hammered on the door and we let them in, and they just said, James is missing. So then it was uh, back home. Jeffrey, who'd given up smoking, he had a cigarette in his hand and he was very upset, as you can imagine. And Helen had the sense to get a photograph. Catherine and Helen drove to Tenby right away, with Jeff electing to stay behind in case James phoned or turned up at the house. By the time they arrived at the seafront that night, the search for James had begun in earnest and the police had engaged the assistance of a sniffer dog team to examine the beach where James's IDs had been found. Well, I'll tell you the strange thing. Helen had a top of James's on and we went past this van in the police station and then all of a sudden it started rocking and howling with dogs, they had dogs in. They were tracker dogs. So the police had had these dogs out looking for James, but they'd lost the scent at the turn-in where it went from the road along to the seafront. But they reckon it was the wind that had taken the scent away. You must remember that there was, it was a very stormy night. The weather had been atrocious the night James had gone missing. He had battled a Force 8 gale as he made his return journey along the seafront. And Tembe is actually like a walled, walled town. And when you come to a certain point, when you come towards the sea, the wind would hit you. So you come down a road and you turn right back to the hotel. So that's where he would have hit the wind. The police spent that first day searching the beach, as well as interviewing all of James's friends. After meeting his parents, they asked them to come down to the station, first thing the following morning. We could stay at the Giltar, which is where James was staying. They uh, got a room for us there. And I remember Helen and I looking out the window, and you could see lights going up and down the beach, which was the Coast Guard and police looking up and down the beach and we walked round didn't see a soul at 12 o'clock at night I think we only saw a police car and it was as calm as anything James's friends could barely look Catherine in the eye oh they were all very distraught the ones that were staying in the same hotel they just couldn't speak to us really but the police did say that all the statements they took everything tallied up you know there was no discrepancy in what they all said um, well, you know, that shows they were the telling the truth to me. And they all wished, you know, one of them had come home with James. But hindsight's wonderful, isn't it? After a restless night at the hotel, Catherine and Helen made their way to Tenby Police Station. So the next day then, we go, and it's a very small police station. So I'm, I had to do what I'm like doing now, from his birth to what he did... Uh, did he try and commit suicide? We went through that. And the policeman did say, well, if he wanted to do that, he could have jumped off the Seven Bridge. The idea that James had taken his own life was one Catherine couldn't even begin to contemplate. James was a happy person, in the prime of his life, away with his closest friends for a trip where he got to indulge in his favourite hobby. 
They had spoken not long before his disappearance about how excited he was about the months ahead. Yeah, well, the calendar for the for the rest of the year was like, play golf here, play golf there, go into the races here, got to meet so-and-so, you know. The forward calendar was looking good. I mean, he'd even ordered up uh, stuff from Amazon that was due to cal- to arrive when he got back. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. As the Nutleys answer questions about James in a small, dimly lit room, outside, the search continued. The seafront was a hive of activity. Lifeboats scoured the chilly waters of South Beach. A heat-seeking helicopter hunted for signs of life, and an abseiling team was deployed to examine the nearby cliffs. By the time the Nutleys had finished speaking with the police, the press had gathered outside. Catherine and Helen made their way to the seafront. It was a calm day, a world away from the stormy weather that had been battering the coast not 36 hours earlier. It's the South Beach, so this is where he would have walked along. They put a mountain rescue team over, so there was ropes and then there's a crowd coming, there's cameras, and and I had um, a liaison officer. uh, And he said, no, you don't say anything, you don't speak to anybody. And you could hear people saying, well, the tide here, oh, he should be over there. He could turn up. If he's in the water, he'll turn up over there. Hearing people openly speculate about where her son's body might turn up was a deeply unpleasant experience for Catherine. But she understood the realities of the search effort. On top of the gale force winds, there had been a high tide the night James went missing. So the theory that in his vulnerable state, he had been blown into the sea and drowned wasn't an outlandish one. By the time Jeff arrived in Tenby on the Tuesday, the bad weather had once again reared its head. Tell how windy it was, because you tried to open your car door, which was very difficult, and then as soon as you got out, it slammed. So he spoke to the police as well then, and then he went home, and I, I stayed with my friends who live in Pembrokeshire. Helen and I, she took us, we sat in the car park and we just cried because we were leaving James behind. This is how it felt. The Nutleys, crestfallen that the search had so far produced no real leads, returned to Caldecott, where they were embraced by the local community. A lot of friends came and said, "You come on, come up to presentation night and we'll put you in a corner and it sort of broke the ice. We came out. People left us alone. Um, I think I'd won a few things from the past year. And I think Helen had as well. And they'd had something for James made as well. But as the weeks and months went by, that initial swell of support started to fall away. People came to visit. So it was lots of cups of tea and talk about it. 
And then gradually less people came. And then after that, uh, we went out. We thought life's got to go on. But people would, in the village, they'd sort of put their heads down and walk the other side of the road. But then it got better, you know, and we, and we talk about it regularly. James's sister took her siblings' disappearance particularly hard. Helen was not well at all, affected her more so, I think, than Geoffrey and I. Because as she said, you've got dad. I always used to have James, I've got no one now. The police soon turned up to search the Nutley family home. They wanted stuff of James's, uh, like a brush with hair in. They took our DNA, you know, with the swabs. Geoffrey jokingly said, he is ours, is he? <laughs> the investigators were leaning towards the theory that one way or another, James had ended up in the water and that there was a strong chance his body would eventually be returned by the sea. did actually say his if he was in the water, his body should turn up about six weeks over and they'd um, alerted Devon and Cornwall police. But six weeks came and went with no sign of James. The Nutleys made numerous trips to and from Tenby over the next few months, each time hoping for fresh insight into their son's whereabouts and each time leaving disappointed. They'd found a shoe, and then James was size 11, and this was size 8. Then they found a body, but it was a woman, <laughs> not James. Catherine held fast to her belief that James hadn't ended up in the water. They really thought, well, is he in the sea? Who's to say? They can't prove it one way or the other. I mean, the cards that they found on the, on the beach... I mean, I threw a card in, that didn't come back. You know, we tried that. And they couldn't tell me whether the actual cards, they couldn't confirm whether they'd been in the water or not. That's how they said it. During the course of her interview with the police, Catherine had mentioned that James fancied the occasional flutter. And they said, oh, well, he used to like a gamble. He must have been in debt. You know, they just formed an opinion. And no, he wasn't in debt because he had stacks of money. <laughs> This felt like a bit of a leap to the Nutleys. Sure, James liked to go to the races and place a few bets, but he was a far cry from a problem gambler. All of a sudden, this missing person case pivoted into a murder inquiry. A 42-year-old man by the name of Richard Fairbrass was arrested after allegedly beating up his girlfriend. The man was known to them. He was the biggest drug dealer in the area. They would know that he'd been in Tenby, but there was no intelligence to say that he was there that night. Whilst being questioned by police, Fairbrass, a local of the town of Milford Haven, just a 30-minute drive from Tenby, made an extraordinary confession. He told the police that he and his girlfriend had crossed paths with James on the night He'd gone missing. They'd met James while he was walking home. And uh, her partner, because James had looked at her or something like this, um, he beat James up on the beach. And he'd hit him with his belt. I mean, James couldn't defend himself. 
Fairbrass said that his girlfriend had initiated the attack and that he had joined in, the pair of them ultimately beating James to death together. He went on to tell investigators how he had hidden James's body in the back of his car before driving to the southwest coast of Pembrokeshire, where they had disposed of him. Thrown him off a place called Stack Rocks. Uh, they actually sent divers down there, believe it or not. And that cost them £19,000, so they told us. After their search failed to turn up anything, Fairbrass admitted that the entire story had been a fabrication, a twisted attempt at getting back at the partner who had reported him for assault. But they had him for uh, making a false confession to James's murder. The times in his story didn't make sense, and he later pleaded guilty to trying to pervert the course of justice. But he was jailed for 27 months. The experience had been a harrowing one for the Nutleys. Led to believe that their son had been murdered, watching as search and rescue teams combed through the waters at Stacks Rocks to see if his body would be unearthed, only to learn that the whole thing had been an elaborate lie, was almost too much to bear. James has now been missing for the better part of two decades, and the investigation has been gathering dust for years. We haven't heard from them in 10 years, and when I did mention to you this fellow from ITV Wales, we did um, The Left Behind. We were, he was actually filming in uh, Tembe with us, and two policemen came along, <laughs> didn't know anything about it. <laughs> You know, I mean, it is, what, coming up 18 and a half years now? Certain people in Tembe knew that James had gone missing, but no. Catherine and Jeff make the two-hour drive to Tenby every year on James's birthday and again on the anniversary of his disappearance. We go into the Gilta because the, the manager... Well, the owner is still there. I mean, it went in lockdown when we couldn't go anywhere. They actually phoned us to say, would you like us to put a tribute out for you? Which is what they did, which was wonderful. Thought it was absolutely lovely. They make their way to the promenade, where James was last seen. There, they place a bouquet of flowers, along with a note, explaining who their son is, and asking anyone with information to come forward. And it might jog someone's memory, but other than that, it, like the um, publicity has sort of died down. Every now and again, Catherine finds herself searching the National Crime Agency's database of unidentified bodies. So I always have a little look at that, just to see. and uh, Just think and look at it and think, no, no, no. <laughs> But then, do I want to know? Helen would like closure. That's the word the police used. But, yeah, my, my, my friend, she always told me he wasn't in the sea. And that's what I'd like to believe. For the Nutleys, life has moved on to some extent, because it has to. And we're lucky now that Helen, although not married, has a partner. And we have two grandchildren. So... They fill, they fill the void. But they'll never give up on the idea that they'll eventually hear a knock on the door and open it 
to a familiar and much-missed face. You know, I, I just feel that James will hopefully turn up one day. That's the way I like to think about it. Until someone's told me different. In many cases, it takes just one piece of information to lead police or family to the answers they crave. If you know what happened to James, or you remember seeing someone like him on October the 24th, 2004, your information could be vital. Even if you've never heard of James Nutley before, you still could help. Visit our website, themissingpodcast.org, where you'll find more information on this and every other case we featured on this podcast. There, you can join an online movement, one dedicated to supporting the investigations for all the cases we've covered, including the one you're listening to right now. Since the launch of The Missing Podcast, over 300 volunteers have joined community investigation teams led by Locate International. In the UK alone, there are over 12,000 long-term missing and unidentified people. To support Locate's efforts and to learn more about the vital work they do, visit locate.international where you can join the mission to help locate the missing. The series is also made in collaboration with the charity Missing People, who work tirelessly to support the families of the missing. Their helpline is open to offer support and advice if you've been affected by anything in this episode. You can reach them by calling or texting 116-000 or by emailing them at 116-000 at missingpeople.org. UK. We cannot say this enough. It takes just one person with the right information to solve any of the cases in this series. The Nutleys hope that the information will soon arrive to solve this one. The Missing is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's presented by me, Pandora Sykes. The episodes are produced and edited by Jack O'Kennedy. The executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. This season, we're launching a new episode of The Missing every week. But if you don't want to wait, you can listen to them exclusively on What's the Story Crime. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes to get access on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. All the information is also available on www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime.